But for tonight, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 4. Having considered in our series of messages on biblical discernment, the topic of worship in general, tonight I want to preach a message on discernment in music, and specifically discernment in church music. And the particular question I want to set before us and answer is the question we've been asking and seeking to answer in every sermon on worship thus far. And the question is, does God care how we worship Him? Does God care how we worship Him? That's the question of all questions as it relates to the topic of worship. Does God care how we worship Him, or is God unconcerned? with how men worship Him. And connected with this question are the crucial connecting questions, namely, is there a right way to worship God? Is there a wrong way to worship God? If so, what are the standards? What are the guidelines? Is God open to any and all expressions of worship? Are there principles the practices of worship ought to be funneled through? Do we have the freedom to incorporate what we like or what we think is best in worship? Are styles of worship a matter of one's preferences? Is it a matter of one's denomination? Is one's sincerity the most important element of worship? Is one's feelings the most important element of worship? And then who sets the guidelines? Who sets the standards for worship? Who says that some things are acceptable in worship and other things are not? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? Let me just say that I'm astonished at how many professing Christians are unwilling to even ask such questions as it relates to worship. I'm amazed at how many people who call themselves Bible believers become quickly angered and irritated at someone who dares to ask such questions by way of examining what is widely accepted in churches by the Bible. Let me just remind you here at the outside of my message that God commands and expects His people to test all things By the word of God. God commands and expects his people to humbly scrutinize every teacher, every teaching, every book, every preference, and every practice by the truths and principles of God's word. And this is what it means to be a Berean believer. Do you remember what is said of the believers in Berea? Luke says, Acts 17, 11, these, speaking of the believers in Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things 
that they were being taught were so. You see, the Bereans did not naively believe everything that were being taught merely becomes because some great apostle was sincere and passionate in his preaching. They only accepted truth because they were fully convinced that such preaching agreed with Scripture. And so it must be with each and every one of us. We must examine without prejudice and without partiality everything by the Bible. We must be willing to ask ourselves, why do we believe what we believe? And why do we do what we do? What biblical truths govern our tastes and preferences? What biblical principles support the choices of our life? Is there anything that we accept or identify with that might dishonor the Lord? Is there anything that we tolerate that might not be the most helpful to our spiritual growth and our Christian testimony? These are the questions that need to be asked and answered in our personal lives as it relates to how we use our time, how we dress, how we spend our money, what we set before our eyes, what books we read, where we go to church, who we associate with, and what we listen to. And likewise, these are the questions that need to be asked and answered as it relates to what we allow in the church. Listen, every single detail of church life, church ministry, church worship, church administration, and church management needs to be considered by the Bible. That is, if we wish to be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. It's vital that we examine what we are giving ourselves to in this place, why we are giving ourselves to those things, and how we are giving ourselves to them. It's vital that we think about, in the context of the church, how the auditorium appears, how we arrange the order of our services, who we allow in various positions of leadership, what we emphasize in our teaching, as well as what kind of music we promote in our desire to worship God. So look there to John 4, 24 again. And hear the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him from the heart according to the way that he has prescribed, according to truth. Jesus is teaching us in John 4, 24, that our worship of the Father ought to be, number one, suitable to God's person, and number two, agreeable to his will. So this means then that there is a divine standard that ought to order and influence the way in which we worship God. We ought to worship God according to His preferences, not ours. 
So the question I'm seeking to ask and answer are, what are God's preferences in music? What are the biblical principles that ought to govern what kind of music is suitable in the church? And before I get into the specifics, let me just note here at the beginning of my sermon that this is in no wise meant to be an exhaustive treatment of music or music theory. If you're interested in studying these things out in greater detail, I'm happy, more than happy, to suggest various resources to you to study. But my primary goal tonight is to help us think about biblical truths that ought to regulate what we allow in public worship in the most straightforward and simple way I know how. So let me begin by stating four simple truths about music that all of us should be able to agree upon tonight. All right, point number one. Music is important to God. Are we safe so far? Music is important to God. Who can deny that? God has given us the gift of music to enjoy to be encouraged by and to express our praise toward Him. One of the longest books of the Bible we have is all about music, the Psalms. So that being said, if music is important to God, it ought to be important to the individual believer and to Christ's church. That's point number one. Music is important to God. Truth number two. There are no specific commands in the Bible that provide us with precise particulars regarding what is acceptable and what is not. And by this I mean, there is not a command that I know of that says, you must only sing a cappella in worship. There's not a command that I'm aware of that specifically says you must only sing songs from the Psalms in worship. There's no specific exhortation that orders us to refrain from using a piano or on the flip side to make sure that we only use a piano. The Bible does not give us specifics regarding what instruments are pleasing and displeasing to the Lord. Or the Bible doesn't give us what decibel level is of God and what decibel level is of the evil one. We cannot find anything that says an acoustic guitar was created by Satan and drums are inherently sinful while harps are naturally angelic and sanctified. There are no specific commands that provide us with precise particulars regarding what is acceptable in worship and what is not. Is everyone still with me? Nobody's left the auditorium yet. This ties in with truth number three. There are no specific truths given in Scripture that assure us that older music is more holy and newer music is less holy. There's no verse that says, 
We should not introduce a song in the worship of God unless the song is over 200 years old. I'm just seeking to be honest here. If you think this way, then you must recognize the fact that there was a time in which the old hymns that we call them were at one time new to others. So there are no specific truths given in Scripture that assure us that older music is more holy and newer music is less holy. And then truth number four, we should all agree upon in this. God cares how we worship Him. God cares how He is represented in worship. And this is the truth being emphasized in John 4.24. This is the truth being emphasized through the entirety of the Bible. God cares how we worship Him. God cares how we approach Him. God cares what lyrics are being communicated to Him and to others. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. The proverb is filled with wisdom regarding what we say. And this relates to music because in music we say things. God cares about the testimony of the church and what it's portraying to a lost and dying world. And God cares how music should be played. Though there are not specifics regarding decibel levels and tempos, We must never deny the fact that the Bible does teach us that all things ought to be done decently and in order. The Bible does teach that musical instruments are to be played skillfully in a way that honors God more than honoring men. And listen, God cares about where the focus of the church service should be because God cares about everything. Don't deny this truth. In our day where people say, God is just neutral towards this area. Excuse me, Paul lays down the principle in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink Or whatsoever you do, you ought to do it to the glory of God. And there are principles that need to be sifted out so that we know we are doing it to the glory of God. So if we can eat and drink to the glory of God, surely we must make sure that our music and our singing and our praising of God is to His honor and glory. There are no specific commands in the Bible that provide us with precise particulars regarding what is acceptable and what is not. There are no specific truths given in Scripture that assures us that older music is more holy and newer music is less holy. God cares how we worship Him, and God cares because music is important to Him. Now, if I was a safe preacher, I would leave it here. So I don't ruffle anyone's feathers. But as you know, my aim is not to be a safe preacher, but a biblical preacher, a helpful preacher, a practical preacher. So we must go on. So now, having considered these introductory truths, let me, in the remainder of our time, give you what I believe to be seven biblical principles that ought to govern 
what kind of music is implemented and tolerated in the church. And listen, because these seven principles are biblical principles, not personal opinions, they should be equally embraced just like the four introductory points that I've just noted. My aim is to give you biblical principles. In every point, I'll give you Bible. So I hope that you will see by the end of this message, all of us should be able to agree with the principles. So here we go. Truth number one. All church music ought to be focused on God. All church music ought to be focused on God. John 4, 24. Notice the emphasis. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Do you see where the focus of worship ought to be? Not on ourselves, not on others, but God. Psalm 29, 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy true sake. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Colossians 1, 18, And he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now this doesn't mean necessarily that there's not a place for songs that speak of the Christian life or the Christian pilgrimage to the celestial city. This doesn't mean that there's not a place for songs that talk about exercising faith in the Lord, songs that are just filled with prayers toward God. But this does mean that such songs ought to cause our minds to think of Him rather than ourselves. And connected with this truth is the plain reality that if a song is truly focused on God... It will be played and sung in a spirit of humility and reverence. The instruments that are played, the songs that are sung, ought to promote and encourage spiritual maturity and reverence. They ought to demonstrate a seriousness about God. We've heard this over the last two weeks, haven't we? Dr. Innes, Pastor Watkins, the last two Sunday mornings, they have emphasized these older preachers who've studied the Word of God for years have emphasized that God ought to be viewed high in our hearts. Not low, but high. Music should never be trivial. We should abandon at once any song introduced within the church that can easily be sung to somebody of the opposite sex. And there are such songs out there. Just speaking of love and care and kindness 
and embracing, but no mention of God. No mention of Bible. Cast it out. Who are we talking about here? And to spell things out for you in specific, any music that causes you to move your hips back and forth or encourage you to run around the auditorium like a loose goose or bang your head as if you're at a rock concert ought to be despised. Why? Because the Bible says, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. How? What's acceptably? Acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. So here's a good way to test whether or not music is truly focused on God. Listen, every church will say, of course our music is focused on God. We're a Christian church. Of course it is. Here's the test. Ask yourself this. If you could invite someone who has no affiliation with Christianity and the church to come watch and listen to the church's music, what would they say? Would they learn anything about God? Would they learn anything about Bible doctrine? Would they think that the church's music is not much different than the music that they listen to in the world? What would they see taking place on the platform? Would they see musicians striving to stir up others emotionally? Would they see musicians enjoying giving others a great performance? Would they see cameras zooming in on the guitarists and on the drummer? Or would they see a people who believe that God is a great, infinite, holy being who ought to be respectfully worshipped? What are we talking about? We're talking about music being focused on God. And by the way, I think we need to adjust some of the music we set before our kids. Some of it is outright ridiculous and senseless. And it's because of this reason alone that I don't encourage our young people to go to the youth rallies. When I hear of churches and youth rallies singing I am a C, I'm a CH, I'm a Christian. And then they change the lyrics to, I am a chicken. Let's change, I am a C, I am a CH. Let's spell out chicken, I am a chicken. I just get as upset with, quote, conservative churches as I do with, quote, liberal churches. Let's teach our young ones truths about God. Let's be serious. Let's stop with the immature, supposed Funny nonsense. We're talking about the Holy One. Read Revelation 4 and 5 and get back to me on what singing to the Lord involves. There's nothing about chickens or sticking out your tongue while you sway back and forth repeating, making melodies in your heart. Let's be honest. Let's be balanced. It's no wonder we've lost a generation of kids. I'm pointing home now. We've taught kids through our music, that Christianity is some trivial activity and God is some childish creature. Be careful. Be careful. I know it's all fun and games to learn songs from vegetables who talk. Veggie tales. 
but have we not created maybe possibly a spirit of immaturity? Truth number one, all church music ought to be focused on God. Truth number two, all church music ought to be biblically sound. There's a concept for us. Bible-believing churches ought to have music that agrees with the Bible. What an amazing theory. And again, let me emphasize the truth that music should not be vague or ambiguous. It ought to be specific in the truths that it's highlighting. Music in the church ought to be theologically rich, not shallow. Because it's the theology of God's word that edifies and strengthens and encourages and provokes and a love and good works and comforts. Listen, it's the truth of God's word that sets us free, not the music itself. Did you catch what I said? It's not the music alone that sets us free. God says it's the Son of God who sets us free by the truth given in the Word of God. The truth shall set you free. Not worship worked up by emotions. So the goal of singing should never be focused on a song that makes people feel good, but a song that's focused on teaching about God. The focus is to be on doctrine more than emotions. It ought to be on truth more than feelings. The goal of, quote, worship should be the proclamation of truth, not the stirring up of sensations. And I like what one pastor says about this. He says, quote, church music, no matter the style, should deepen the Biblical and theological understanding of the congregation, a song that is inaccurate, out of context, or trite, only hinders the spiritual growth of those who sing it. So I am asserting in my second point that church music ought to be biblically sound. Truth number three all church music ought to be thoughtful and orderly. Thoughtful and orderly. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Music ought to be structured. It ought to have a sensible rhythm. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, that it is needful to sing with the understanding. So we shouldn't encourage others to sing songs mindlessly. Christianity is not a mindless faith. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Church music should never promote disorder or pandemonium. Church music ought to be reflective. Church music ought to cause us to think about who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. But how can you reflect when music is blasting in your ears? Take the second hymn that we sang tonight, This Is My Father's World. Was it not moving to you? Oh, those people at Calvary, they have got boring music. 
Really? Listen to the words of the song. This is my father's world. Think about that in the context of all that's going on. Whose world is this? Hamas's world? The rulers of the nations? Who does the world belong to? This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong offs seem so strong, God is the ruler yet. Does that teach you anything? The heart of man is in the hands of the Lord, and God turns it whithersoever He will. He's the only wise potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're not done. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. You are still in the battle? It's not done. We're still fighting. But Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. We win. Why do we win? Because Jesus has promised to conquer. Is that not moving to you? That's something you can rest your head on tonight, knowing that you might get the notification tomorrow morning, World War III is here. This produces great thoughts about God. It doesn't encourage us to scream like banshees or doesn't produce us jumping around like a bunch of hyenas. All church music is to be thoughtful, orderly. That's truth three. Truth number four, all church music ought to encourage the entire congregation to sing. Nobody brings up this point anymore. All church music ought to encourage the entire congregation to sing. Church music should never discourage the congregation to sing. And yet most modern day praise teams in churches with their loud, in-your-face music encourages the exact opposite of what I'm proposing. Since when did we come to accept the idea that a praise team is needed to suppress congregational singing? You shut up, look at us while we show ourselves great. Since when did pastors come to the conclusion that it would be better to turn up the music so loud that no one can hear anyone singing? Collective singing is to be congregational. Just trace out the Old Testament scriptures. Read the Psalms, Psalms of Ascent, that were sung by who? Four people on a platform? No, they were sung by the nation together. What do we do on Sundays? What do we do in our gatherings? We come to meet as one unified body. We come to hear the word together as one. So we must sing together praises to God as one. Behold, how beautiful it is in God's sight for brethren to dwell together in unity. Church music is not to be a performance of a select few on a platform while the rest sit back and watch sipping on their lattes. It's to be something that encourages everyone to sing. And often... And the implementation of certain kinds of music within the church, oftentimes you come to hinder the congregation from singing together because the songs that are set before them are difficult to sing collectively. 
And this is my problem with, quote, CCM music. The problem is not that the church doesn't know the new songs. That's not the problem. The problem is the new songs are not created with the congregation in mind. They're created with the artist and his selling records in mind. All church music ought to encourage the entire congregation to sing. Sing. Young, old, rich, poor, male, female, educated, uneducated. We're all one in Christ. And yet we're dividing the church into those who have talent and those who don't. I think James has something to say about that. Truth number five. Church music should never seek to replace, diminish, or take priority over the preaching of God's word. Let me say it again. Church music should never seek to replace, diminish, or take priority over the preaching of God's Word. Don't take my word for it. Search the Scriptures. See what the primary focus of the church ought to be. Jesus came preaching the Word, not holding musical concerts. Jesus sent His apostles out into the world as preachers, not performers. Paul told Timothy that he ought to give himself to study and preach the word, not to allure the world to Christ or music. Now, don't take me out of context. Music is important to God. We've already established that. But this 50 minutes of music plus 15 minutes of announcements and only 10 minutes of preaching needs to be recognized and reformed. If more attention is given to the music than the preaching and teaching of God's Word in a church, there's a great problem. And there's a great problem because they've lost their focus. Listen, if the band, if the praise team can practice for three hours, but they can't give three minutes to pray for the preaching, there's a problem. The same is true with conservative choirs in Baptist churches. I've seen choir members, not here, in another place. I've seen choir members who come for choir practice at 5 o'clock. They spend an hour practicing music and then they leave just before the 6 o'clock preaching service. And the pastor doesn't say a word. Church music should never seek to replace diminish or take priority over the preaching of God's Word. Now, I'm going to get in trouble for the next truth, but so be it. Truth number six. I'm persuaded that the Bible teaches that all corporate church music should be led by godly men. And yes, I'm being gender specific. I'm asserting that church music should be led by biological men. Now, if you disagree with me, hear me out. Let me say it again. All corporate church music should be led by, I didn't say any man, I said godly men. Not willing teenagers who like to listen to Justin Bieber. Not by anyone who has a passion for music. 
Not by men who are musically talented, but sloppy Christians. I said church music should be led by godly men, humble men, gracious men, serious-minded men, men who strive to walk with God. Church music should be led by men who know Bible doctrine. Men who are not going to be persuaded by every wind of doctrine, every compromising gimmick that's set before the church. Call me a bigot if you please, but this is a principle I think that is clear as day in Scripture. God has called who to be leaders of their home? Men. Adam was first formed and then Eve. Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians, establishing the biblical order in the home. And then God has called men to be the leaders in the church. Now, this doesn't diminish the importance of women serving in the church. I'm not asserting that men are more important to God than women. But I am saying when we look at Scripture and we see who God has ordained to be the leaders of worship and leaders within the church, it's always God-fearing biological men. And I'm persuaded that our society's feministic indoctrination has been the cause of the acceptance of women in leadership positions within the church. More and more, we're seeing women leading worship. Women being front and center. Women leading men. Women even provocatively swaying their bodies in front of men in church. Which, by the way, this is all new. It's not old. The reformers, the revivalists throughout church history would think we're altogether apostate if they saw what we accept today. We've become so used to it. We've become so used to it, nobody questions it. And if anybody should question it, they're called hateful and chauvinistic pigs. But I'm persuaded that what we're seeing in churches regarding women taking over It's a whole package deal. If you allow a woman to lead worship over men, over the congregation, then why not allow them to usher? Why not allow women to give the announcements? Why not allow women to read the scripture reading? Why not allow women to be the deacons or teach or preach or pastor? Listen, the Bible presents to us the plain fact that when men Do not lead as God has intended for them to do. Things get out of order. You can get mad at me if you want, but the Bible clearly articulates that God has ordained men to be the spiritual leaders of the home and the church. Truth number seven. Church music should do everything it can to avoid impersonating and looking like the world. Church music should do everything it can to avoid impersonating and looking like the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be molded to what this world is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. James 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now, question. Where do you think churches got the idea of creating Christian rap and Christian rock? I'll give you a hint. Where did rap and rock derive from? Where do you think Christian musicians and praise teams got the idea of darkening the auditorium, synchronizing flashing lights with their music, setting up fog machines on the platform, and employing the beats, rhythms, and loudness they use in church? They got it from the world. Do you remember my sermon from Exodus 32? Do you remember when Aaron gave Israel what they wanted in worship? Do you remember how Israel mimicked what they saw in Egypt by dancing around a golden calf as music was being played? Solomon tells us there's nothing new under the sun. The golden calf among most churches today is music that appeals to the flesh. Music that impersonates the world. Music that turns musicians into entertainers and idols. And with such music always, always comes a spirit of casualness, flippancy, doctrinal shallowness, spiritual immaturity, carnality, and many times apostasy. Mark my words, when churches begin adopting the world's philosophy of music, there will always be a growing carelessness of strong Bible preaching sensible dress standards, separation from the world in one's personal life, and a striving to reach the world with the truths of God over carnal gimmicks. Listen, oftentimes it's a whole package deal. When the music goes, then the women preachers come in, then fun church with Super Mario Sunday comes in, and tailgate parties come in, and then the atmosphere becomes casual and full of people who treat the church like a social club rather than a church. Baptist pastors used to preach strongly against this. 
But sadly, because they lack backbone and they fear men over God, most of them have joined in on what's cool and what's relevant. Church music should do everything it can to avoid impersonating and looking like the world. And if you're here tonight thinking, Pastor, I think you're making a bigger issue out of worship and music than you should. I think music is a secondary issue, not a gospel issue. Well, let me kindly remind you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling out of the world. The message of the gospel is a representation of God. So when you employ the world's music styles in the church... Even though a preacher preaches a gospel sermon, you have now two voices in the church crying out to people. You have the biblical voice that says, come out from among them and be ye separate. And then at the same time, you have the visible voice through music and entertainment that says, we love the world and we want what the world has to offer. You don't have one voice, you have two voices. And listen, such things cause confusion. Such things are a contradiction to the message of the gospel. God is not the author of confusion. So church music should do everything it can to avoid impersonating and looking like the world. Why does the world want a church that acts like the world? This is often what they point their finger at. You're no different than I am. Should be distinctly different. Now I would have you note, as I conclude, that I haven't labeled anyone specifically. I could have, but I didn't. I haven't named any churches. I haven't named any artists, in the Christian realm at least. I haven't named any groups. I could have, but I chose not to. I've not made statements that are meant to be antagonistic. I've simply given you biblical truths and principles through which we can discern church music by. So my hope is that you will be among those who seek to hold the church to biblical standards of worship. Few are willing to assess what is taking place in most churches. And most will just happily go along with whatever is accepted and whatever is popular. But I'm calling on you this evening to grow in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ.